Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with New Hampshire Representative Matt Wilhelm. Matt started his career managing bands, then AmeriCorps members in under-resourced schools, and is now the minority leader in the New Hampshire legislature. We talked about the similarity in those experiences and the current absolutely fascinating politics in New Hampshire. This was a wide-ranging and fun conversation. Enjoy. New Hampshire Representative Matt Wilhelm, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Looking forward to talking to you today. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Looking forward to it. So I got to start. We've had a lot of guests with a lot of different backgrounds. I don't know that we've had anyone come from the music industry. Can you talk a little bit about that career path and maybe some of the lessons you learned that have helped in in politics? Yeah, it is kind of an unlikely uh, path to the statehouse. But for me, my path in public service really started as a college student. So I went to Plymouth State College in New Hampshire, grew up in Nashua, and then headed to the mountains did an internship uh, my sophomore year with a band that was up and coming and that was just starting its first and only national tour, going to some pretty incredible venues. But they were an independent kind of DIY band called Dispatch. And I was interning in their office. I think they had one staff member at the time and really helping to fuel this independent grassroots band that in so many ways, I think about the work that we did in setting up a a rep program where fans were selling CDs to other fans to get them excited about the artist. So much of that is, you know, transferable to the campaign world and to politics in general as you're growing social movements, environmental movements, justice-oriented movements. And so when I was done at college, uh, graduated with a degree in communications and minor in political science. I decided I wanted to do a couple years of full-time national service, civilian national service with an AmeriCorps program called City Year that works in schools and under-resourced public schools in the state. Moved to Manchester, biggest city, the bustling metropolis, as we call it, of uh, the Granite State, and had a really transformative couple of years you know, focusing on supporting kids with their attendance, with their behavior, with their course performance, and helping them stay in school and on track to graduate. And it was through that experience with AmeriCorps, I, I fell in love with the city of Manchester, which I now represent in the state house. But I also fell in love with the big idea of civilian national service, of AmeriCorps, of the Peace Corps, of being able to serve a cause that's greater than yourself, serve your community, your country, and come together with other Americans from different backgrounds and different walks of life to make the world a better place. And it was at City Year that I decided to go back to my music industry roots and got in touch with some of the 
folks that I had worked with, both with Dispatch and with some other bands that were managed by the same manager. And we we developed this program called Concert Core, where we teamed up with bands and fans to do pre-show community service projects. And so instead of you know doing a radio appearance, the band would show up at a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter or the beach to do a beach cleanup with their fans. And then the concert kind of became a celebration. And so we went out on the road with the band Guster and the nonprofit Reverb that one of the, the band members, Adam Gardner and his wife, Lauren Sullivan, that they started to engage fans around environmental protection, environmental service, sustainability, and really greening tours and figuring out how the bands could make a positive social or environmental impact wherever they went. That led to a career for about 10 years working in the music industry at the intersection of, of social and environmental change. And once once I was kind of too too old to uh, keep that up, and I, have, I got a couple kids now, and it was basically it was like, hey, we get really make a decision here about the quality of our life as a family. My wife's also a, a city-year AmeriCorps alum. And wanting to wake up at my home with my incredible family rather than waking up on a tour bus and having to figure out what city I'm in, was really excited to think about politics, especially after the 2016 election, thinking about democracy and what it might require of us to get things back on track. My wife, Jody and I had a conversation and said, hey, this feels like democracy might be requiring more of us right now, and really leaned into elected public service and put my name on the ballot. But there are a lot of transferable skills from that that time, you know, working in the music industry and working in the nonprofit sector that I continue to use today in my role as Democratic leader of the, the House, House Democrats in New Hampshire. That is a fascinating journey. And I love how it's serviced from all these different angles. I'm tempted to ask who's most challenging to work with, politicians Rock stars or kids? Uh, <laughs> since you uh, you picked all three, I don't know if the end of session, if it's a fair, uh, it'll be fair to your fellow electeds. What your answer is, but if you have any thoughts, let me know. Yeah, it's a good question and probably one that I'm uh, I, I should not step into uh, <laughs> at least with a couple weeks left. We'll we'll see at the end of at the end of session as we head into campaign time in 2024. I might might have a more pointed answer to that question. <laughs> Fair enough. Before we get into what's going on in New Hampshire politics, I am curious that younger generations right now are very, you know, they easily engage in public service of all kinds, but they're a little skeptical of politics and government, at least according to surveys. From your experience, what do you think the political system needs to do to engage younger generations in elected service or and, and politics generally? Well, I think that, first of all, I think this next generation that's coming up that's in high school, college age kids, they have a low tolerance for BS. They have a, a clear understanding of right and wrong, of just and unjust, fair and unfair. I think they're going to be pushing us and really holding our feet to the fire to not just say the right things, but actually do the right things and follow up with action. So hopeful that a more direct and earnest generation is going to push for policies that are going to serve us well over the long term. I think it's interesting. I think they're, they're, we've given, I think in the last few decades, we've given young people few reasons to believe that government can actually work for them and deliver results. And, you know, a big part of why 
I got into public service, yes, I understood that our democracy was facing a really perilous time. But I also, through my civilian national service experience with with AmeriCorps and leading teams of young people, 17 to 24-year-olds from all across the country, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different religious backgrounds, LGBTQ+, we've got folks, different races. I just think that there is so much that you can experience through a program that was so brilliantly designed, like AmeriCorps, it's a public-private nonprofit partnership that puts folks in the middle of some real public policy challenges and asks them to deliver results to solve problems and get things done for their community and their country. I would love for that to be the AmeriCorps experience or the Peace Corps experience to be a common expectation, not a requirement, right? I'm not talking about mandatory national service, but would love for civilian national service to be a common expectation of all young people in this country where, you know, if you're applying for college or you're applying for a job, one of the questions they're asking you is, is what'd you do for your service here? Because we know that when young people especially serve on teams and solve problems and are close to the challenges that they read about in the newspaper or see on TV or hear about on the radio and are part of delivering results, that can be really empowering and I think can open up folks' eyes to all sorts of possibilities in the way the government can be a partner in helping to solve problems. But I think to this point, just in my 40, 40 years of being around, we've given young people few opportunities to believe and trust that government's on their side, especially as we see fundamental rights you know, under attack. So I think the more we can involve young people in the work of solving those problems, the more that we can be real partners in delivering for our communities. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel like one of the few ways that we could lift ourselves out of the divide and cynicism is to have a national service, community service efforts greatly expanded and just have people bring people back to teams and solving problems together. I feel like it would be so transformative in so many different ways. Totally. And it could be a step towards a whole lifetime of of service. You know, sure, there are going to be people like me who say, yeah, I want to go into government elected service or appointed service. But also it can be a pathway to a number of careers because at the end of the day, employers, colleges, like they want employees or they want students who are service-driven, community-minded. That's exactly who they they want to have around them. And so one of the things that, that we've worked on in the state of New Hampshire, and one of the first things that I did when I was elected was establish a commission to study pathways from national service programs to an affordable college degree and a meaningful career in the state of New Hampshire, just knowing that we'd have folks who would come here from other states and have a really great experience. But at the end of the day, employers and colleges didn't appreciate fully the the kind of human resource asset that they brought to our state. And oftentimes, you know, the folks that we'd be serving with would would go back to their home state and New Hampshire would miss out on really a, a whole lifetime worth of commitment to our state. And so that's a resource that I think we want to more effectively channel and make sure we're taking advantage of, especially as we see, you know, lots of turnover in with teachers, with nonprofit leaders, with public sector employees 
it can be a real a real asset for our state that we should be better taking advantage of. I totally agree. Are you seeing any traction with those efforts in terms of employers better tapping into that those pools of talent? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a couple national programs that we're seeing more New Hampshire institutions lean into. One is AmeriCorps Schools of Service and the Peace Corps Coverdell Fellows Program, which sets up these service-driven young people into academic programs that that where they can either get credit for service or scholarship dollars for service. Oftentimes, we see colleges and universities match the $7,000 education award that AmeriCorps members receive, which really sends a message that this is the type of student that they want on their campus. Another one is Employers for National Service, which is an opportunity for employers from across sectors, public, private, nonprofit, to say, we really value AmeriCorps and Peace Corps alumni, and we want them as part of our workforce. And it's a way that they can market their employment opportunities, their job listings, specifically to those those service-driven young people. And we've seen uh, New Hampshire employers and New Hampshire colleges join those efforts. And it seemed to make a difference uh, in terms of marketing that New Hampshire is a place that really values that experience. That's great. I love that model. So let's talk New Hampshire politics and policy. As we record this, you're in the final weeks of a legislative session. Talk about what's going on in New Hampshire that you think the rest of the country should know about. Well, it's a really exciting time. The New Hampshire State House, the New Hampshire House of Representatives, which is a 400-member body, is currently nearly tied. It's 199 Republicans to 197 Democrats. It's uh, really historic numbers. And on any given day, Democrats or Republicans can be in the majority just based on who's showing up. Committees have an equal number of uh, Republicans and Democrats on it. And House Democrats have had a real opportunity to push for the types of policies that we think are important in the budget, everything from housing funding to public school funding to increasing Medicaid provider rates and passing a seven-year Medicaid expansion sunset, which will reauthorize Medicaid expansion for the next several years with the possibility for permanent expansion on the horizon will come up for a vote in January. So it's been a really interesting process, unprecedented in many ways for us to be working so closely with the majority party, just given our numbers. And I think, you know, we're a pretty pragmatic state at the end of the day. I think Granite Staters have rejected extremism and have said, we really want to see the two parties working together, roll up their sleeves, solve problems and get things done. And I'm, I'm proud to say that we've been in a position to, to deliver on that. I do want to talk about the bipartisan efforts that you've been spearheading, but this dynamic of such a large legislature and then such a narrow margin between the parties. And I think I've heard informally about it, but like, you know, it is a matter of trying to get bodies into the chamber to control key votes. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like, especially with your role as the senior assistant Democratic leader? Yeah. And actually, so my I'm actually the the Democratic leader now. So that was a, a title that I had last term. And so, you know, in serving as as Democratic leader in the New Hampshire House, we have had to put a lot of emphasis on organization and making sure that we've got 
good lines of communication with our entire caucus that they're briefed heading into every single session day. There's so many things that are unique about the New Hampshire House and the way that we set up our rules. One of them is that any legislator can introduce as much legislation as they want, as many bills as they want. Every single one of those bills will get a public hearing in committee, will get a recommendation out of committee, and then get a vote on the floor of the House, up or down. And that, you know, is just, it speaks, I think, to the the unique nature of the citizen legislature where power is really decentralized. and it's almost like a glorified town meeting with 400 state reps, all of them, each of whom are, are making $100 a year. So it's really a volunteer citizen legislature experience. So much of the work that we've had to do this year has been focused on turnout. It's almost like it's election day every Thursday when we gather for session, needing to remind our reps what's at stake, what's on the calendar, what are the bills, and how are they going to impact, how are those votes going to impact their constituents? And We've had a great deal of success in turning folks out and stopping some really bad bills from becoming law, including two different bills, one in the House and one in the Senate. It's the so-called Parental Bill of Rights, which is really code for anti-trans legislation, which we were able to not only defeat, but indefinitely postpone a couple of weeks back to make sure that it was not going to be brought back up for debate for the duration of the biennium. So really proud of some of the work that we're doing. One, to stand up for our values as Democrats, but also working across the aisle where it makes sense so that we can deliver results and have something to point to when we run for re-election in, in 2024. What are the big outstanding issues that you'll wrap up either in this session or or a future session that you think may have a profound impact on New Hampshire, which obviously always plays an outsized role in our national politics? So New Hampshire is an island of prohibition when it comes to cannabis. There's been a real bipartisan effort this term to pass legalization and regulation of cannabis. It was stopped in the the Senate after passing on a strong bipartisan basis. About two-thirds of members voted for it. And the governor has weighed in and said that he really wants a a state-run model. So there's going to be some work done over the summer, commissions forming, that will look at some options, and hopefully they'll develop a new framework that we can model legislation after for 2024. But I think that's that's an interesting, it's an interesting issue, and it's an interesting area where even four years ago, I'm not sure we would have seen such uh, bipartisan work to get that through. But I think given that Vermont and Maine and Massachusetts have all legalized, there's an economic argument for it. There's also a criminal justice and social equity argument for it. And for lots of different reasons, you've got some libertarians who say, hey, the whole live free or die ethos says that we should legalize this plant. You know, there's pro-business argument for it. And then there's an economic competitiveness argument as well. So it's been been an interesting bill to be working on and one where, you know, the majority leader and I have been able to work together. And you're doing all this, wrangling uh, all these uh cats to get there for votes and make sure that everyone knows what they're voting on and why it's important while balancing having two younger kids that you traded in the music career to spend more time. How do you balance the demand to the legislature and leadership with family time? Yeah, it's been a, a challenge and I'm really lucky to have such a supportive spouse. My wife, Jody's a teacher and just an incredible mom and partner in this work. And part of it's because we got into this together. We said, you know, we acknowledged that this was going to be a commitment that we needed to make together as a 
as a couple, as as partnership, but also as a family and feel really lucky that she's been with me every step of the way. And usually fourth graders in New Hampshire, I've got a, a fourth grader and a first grader. The fourth graders go on a field trip to the state house. And my son probably knows a whole lot more about what goes on in this building than most of the kids in his class. But it's been really fun to have conversations at the dinner table about what exactly we're fighting for on an everyday basis and really get them engaged in some of the issues. But it's been a fun back and forth and just something we do as a family because there will be events in the evenings and the weekends. And obviously, a lot of that I have to do myself. But when there is an opportunity to to bring the family along, it's, we usually make it a, a pretty fun experience for everybody. But the balance is a, is a challenge. You know, I think there's early mornings and there are late nights and everything in between. But I think when I get home, it really is its kind of the highlight of the day because I get to look my family in the eye and be reminded exactly why I'm working so hard and why we're fighting for more just and more equitable and a stronger state because it's, you know, my kids that are going to take it over one day and want to make sure that them and their classmates have all the opportunities that I had growing up in the state. So it's a, it's a team effort, but uh, one that I wouldn't trade in for anything in the world. It's been a lot of fun. When you think back to that decision that you and your spouse made about trying to engage in democracy when it was needed, what's the most surprising thing that's happened since you've started public service? And it could be surprising in a good way or a bad way, but just is there anything that, that you didn't expect when you jumped into this experience? Well, to be completely honest with you, I my first term, I was a I was a backbencher, a literal backbencher in the House Democratic Caucus, sat in the back row, right next to a now state senator, my friend Donovan Fenton. But Donovan and I, you know, I think we were both pretty happy, you know, showing up for votes and serving on committees that didn't meet especially often. But the longer we hung around, I think the more opportunity found us and certainly found me. I, you know, I didn't think that leadership was something that would be something that I'd be interested in, especially in my my second or third term. But enough people reached out and I think saw some qualities in me that harken back, frankly, to my national service days with AmeriCorps and leading teams and bringing people together and being able to rally everyone and being inclusive about our approach and how we lead our team forward. I think they saw that and saw that that was needed within our caucus. So it's happy to to answer that call. It's never a dull moment. I think, you know, there are policy issues that come up. There are tough decisions that need to be made. There are leaders that similarly, right, are in their first term and who need to be reached out to and encouraged to step up in large and small ways. And that's the part of the work that I think I enjoy the most. I think, you know, we've got a really talented and really diverse caucus ideologically through the areas that they worked on in their careers. We have a lot of retired members who are doing this as kind of a second career. And I just love being able to visit them in their home communities and brag about the work that they're doing to make sure that they're advocating for the type of state that we all believe is possible. There's a Republican trifecta at the moment here in the New Hampshire State House. And that is that those are the hard realities, the hard truths. I mean, I think the the numbers within the chamber, you know, have allowed us some room to to get some wins, to stop some bad things from happening and to to pass some good policy. But we also know that 51% of voters in our state voted for House Democrats and Senate Democrats. 
And with Republican-drawn maps from two years ago, we feel good about the path forward to keep fighting for for a more just and more equitable state. So excited about the work. And uh, it's always something a little bit different. I think that's that's one of the, the most fun things about it is you wake up and you're not really sure exactly how the day is going to unfold, but it's not without its challenges and not without its kind of silver linings and and joyful moments as well. When you, you get to work with people to solve problems, it's a, it's a pretty fun gig. I can't, I, yeah, I can't imagine what your day is like uh, with that many members to collaborate with, work with, and try to try to all keep coordinated. New Hampshire is a swing state, as you mentioned, that Republicans control the state legislature and governor. It's a slim margin. What do you think the Democratic Party, sort of writ large, could do to better speak to voters in New Hampshire and move into a, a, a majority and both at the state level, but then also hopefully at the presidential level as well. Yeah. And, you know, the level in between, right, you know, our federal delegations, all Democratic. In 2020, we lost the majority and Senate Democrats also lost the majority. And with that, we lost the opportunity to control the redistricting process. We'd been fighting really hard for independent redistricting, saw that vetoed by the governor. And we're pretty powerless in stopping some some pretty egregious gerrymandering, especially in the Senate and our executive council maps. Last cycle, I chaired the Democratic Victory Campaign Committee, which is our caucus's effort to win 201 plus seats. We came so darn close, but learned a lot along the way as we professionalized our operation. We raised more money than ever before. We're really data-driven, focused on mail and digital and getting our members and candidates out knocking doors, talking face-to-face with their constituents. I had the privilege of being able to knock doors with our candidates all across the state. And, you know, I think one of the things we talk about with our candidates is just making sure that they're listening and learning. Sure, it's important to talk about what you're bringing to the table and your policy positions. But at the end of the day, you know, especially in the, the 2022 election, our neighbors are really struggling, struggling with property taxes struggling with the cost of energy, really frustrated with what they were seeing at the federal level with the Dobbs decision and reproductive rights being put at risk. And in our state, you know, the Republicans put an abortion ban into the state budget. And so that was something that we were talking about at the doors and wanted to make sure that our neighbors really understood. But I think it's that exchange. It's about getting out there. It's about you know, showing up at our neighbor's doorsteps. That's how we do democracy in, in New Hampshire. It's by having those conversations and making sure that everybody knows what's at stake. So I think we want to continue the momentum that that we started two years ago and keep that going and make sure that we're recruiting really talented candidates who have deep roots in their communities, who aren't pushing ideological agendas, but really want to, you know, be part of our state's rich tradition of public service. So that you know, I think people trust their government more. That's what people are looking for in our state. Again, we're pretty, pretty pragmatic bunch and they want leaders to deliver results. And that's, that's what we've been doing this term. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And in every state, fundamentally, that's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up here, I mean, uh, just, just for fun, can you tell us like, if I wanted to come spend uh, a couple days in New Hampshire, maybe even think about moving there, what should I do? What should I see in your state? It's a great question. One of the things that I really love about being in Manchester is not only do we have an, a really incredible mill city with a minor league ballpark and a 
and an arena and a world-class art museum in the Courier Museum of Art. We're also an hour from pretty much anything you could want. We're an hour from the mountains, hour from the lakes, hour from the seacoast. We're an hour from the city of Boston. If you want to go in and catch a Red Sox game, we're big Red Sox fans up here. And I've lived through some some pretty exciting moments, some pretty uh, incredible World Series championships over the last couple of decades. So New Hampshire's great. And if you haven't been, I hope you'll come and I hope you'll stop by the State House. We've got a really great visitor center and team that is happy to give you a tour and show you around. In fact, today, my friend Cindy Munson, who's the Oklahoma House Democratic leader, she's going to be stopping by here in a little bit. And we're going to take a quick tour around the building while she's in town. But if you if you ever stop by, don't hesitate to come up to the third floor of the State House. Uh, would love to say hello. And whether I'm in the, the House Democratic office or over in the Speaker's office, we'd love to welcome you to the state of New Hampshire and tell you about the incredible 400-seat chamber and representative democracy that's alive and well here in the Granite State. There you go. Honorable Profession Nation, you have an invitation to, to head to New Hampshire and get a personal tour of the, of the state capitol. That is so cool. Matt, it's been great talking to you. I love the journey. I love the way you connected the pieces of service and community with the very real policy and governing issues you're facing there. And it's just a pleasure to have you in the New Deal. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks for taking time to chat. Look forward to talking again soon. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.